Hi everyone, Pastor John Nays from Bridgepoint Church in Green Bay, Wisconsin, coming to you with lesson number seven in our series of the through the book of Revelation. Just chapters one and two, we're looking at the introduction of the book, which is chapter one, and, and the vision of Christ that John had. And then in chapter two, we get into, and chapter three, we get into the seven churches of Asia Minor. So today we're going to be looking at the church of Pergamos. But before I get started, I did get called out last week over something I said. And that's that I said that um, Smyrna was um, the only church of the seven that wasn't rebuked for something or corrected for something. And that's not true. Also, the church in Philadelphia, which we'll get to later was not called out for their sin. So I appreciate the correction, and I don't know why I said that, just uh, said something wrong, so I apologize for that, and hope you'll understand and get it right in your heads um, that there were two churches that were not rebuked, Smyrna and Philadelphia. So let's look at Pergamos together, and we're just going to read through it, and then we'll uh, talk about some of the key indicators or the most important things that we need to understand. Again, through this study, you're getting kind of an overview or a glossary view of what actually went on and what the church historians and so on have some have debated for years over some of these issues. And, and I'm trying to highlight some of the important parts of these books, not necessarily bring to grand conclusion any idea or thought. Um, there are still some things that we won't even begin to touch when we look at the seven churches. The important thing is, that we look at these seven churches and understand that these were real churches, real bodies of believers that existed shortly after the time of Christ, the first, second, and at some level, a third generation of Christians living in these cities and trying to do the work of the Lord in um, oftentimes very, very stressful situations. And Pergamos is one of those churches, or Pergamum is one of those churches that was under just extreme duress for being Christians. And um, so we're going to talk about some of that as well. So let's just read. Um, we're in chapter 2, verse 12. To the angel of the church of Pergamon write, These are the words of him who has, a sh who has the sharp double-edged sword. I know where you live, where Satan has his throne. Yet you remain true to my name. You did not renounce your faith in me, not even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was put to death in your city, where Satan lives. Nevertheless, I have a few things against you. There are some among, of you, among you who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught, who taught Balak to entice the Israelites to sin so that they ate food sacrificed to idols and committed sexual immorality. Likewise, you also have those who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans, Repent, therefore. There's an exclamation point there, for this is a strong rebuke. Repent, therefore. Otherwise, I will soon come to you and will fight against you, fight against them with the sword of my mouth. Whoever has ears, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who is victorious, I will give some of the hidden manna. I will also give that person a white stone with a new name written on it, known only to the one who receives it. So let's start right at the beginning. In every one of these churches, Christ is represented or, or visualized back to chapter 1. And in this, ch in this church, he's, he's represented as Christ who has the double-edged sword proceeding out of his mouth. Now, a double-edged sword 
is double-edged because it has two purposes. And when we're talking about truth and biblical truth or spiritual truth, we need to understand that they were coming with the idea of a double-edged sword meant that there's both salvation and destruction. So the double-edged sword means that it cuts both ways. Simply put, it means that if you accept the gospel of Christ and you accept the truth of God's word, then you find salvation if you reject them, if you reject those truths and you reject Christ, then it's destruction to you. It's similar to the story of the, um, of the stone over which men stumble and some fall and some are crushed. There's a, there's a vision here or, or an illustration of how the gospel of Jesus Christ actually works. There are many who will accept it and many who will, re who will reject it. To one it means salvation, to the other it means certain damnation and destruction. So that's the picture of Christ here with a double-edged sword. The sword of truth cuts both ways. So when we go on and look at what the double-edged sword means and, and how the scriptural references to that, there are seven actually in all of the Bible. Two of them in Revelation, five others in the New Testament. So seven references to the double-edged sword. So this is not a new reference and it's not a, um, an off-handed remark. This is a vision of Christ who has the sword of truth coming out of his mouth, the word of God, and that word is steadfast. It cannot be compromised. If it is compromised, then destruction comes. Let's go on. First, he has praise for the church, that they've stood their ground where Satan has his seat. Now, in Pergamos, like a lot of other churches, or in Pergamum, like a lot of other these churches, there are all kinds of temples um, to false gods. And in Pergamum, there are, there are a lot of them. It's really kind of a metroplex of, of whoever wants to believe whatever they want to believe kind of mindset. And here in, in this passage, the Lord is saying to them, look, I, I know where you live. I know that this is tough, that you are the only ones representing me there. You are the only ones representing the true God, and especially the Christ who is the Son of God and God himself. So he says to them, look, I know where you live, that you're at the seat of Satan. There's all kinds of demonic oppression against you. There's all kinds of pressure for you to cave and to walk away. And I know that. I understand that. It's a reminder to each and every one of us, even though the world is, fights against the church and fights against the truth of God's word, that opposition does not overcome, and nor does it, um, nor does it diminish God's understanding of it. In other words, God knows exactly where we are. And in our cultures and in our societies, no matter where we are, we're going to face opposition because we hold fast to that truth, that Christ, that gospel, that loving understanding of who God is to us. And the enemy hates it. And so the seed of Satan is reference to that. This is, there are all kinds of people out there in this culture, in this society, who absolutely hate the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's closed-minded, it's narrow, whatever they want to say. None of that is really true, but it is very specific. It's a specific truth. It's a specific understanding. It is not all-inclusive. Again, it is very exclusive. Because of the gospel of Christ, it is the truth that we hold to. So let's move on. 
So where all these other temples are, and all these other gods are worshipped, gods with a small g, of course, um, that they held fast, and get this, to my name. And this is a personal reference. This isn't just about being Christian by name only or being Christian because I go to a Christian church. These are people that held to the name of Christ, and they had a personal relationship with him, a personal experience in their salvation through him. And uh, so this, this should really be taken as, as really a warm understanding of the relationship that the church has with Christ. And even though Christ is seen as the overcomer, the victor, the one with the double-edged sword in his mouth, which is judgment and truth, well, it's both, there's this connection, there's this personal relationship that also connects the church and to Christ himself. So he says, you've held to my name, the name of Jesus that's above every name. So let's move on. So here's the rebuke. He talks about their compromises. They've allowed the doctrines of Balaam and of the Nicolaitans to infiltrate their church, To that there are those there who hold to these two doctrines. Now the doctrine of Balaam, Balaam can be found in um, Numbers chapter 22 through chapter 25. Three chapters, by the way, that speak to just this sin in the Old Testament. And so it's an important thing to understand that the doctrines of Balaam were the deception of God's people, bringing them into sin, bringing them into um, untruth, and of rejecting the truth of God's word and and who they even are as God's people. So intermarrying with other with uh, with other people around them that were not Jewish, and having sexual relationships relationships with people that were not um, of Jewish descent. So all of these things played into Balaam's rebuke and Balaam's sin. Also, these food sacrifice to idols. And that played a big role in, the, in Pergamum because everything that Pergamum had going on around him, the whole culture was saturated with idol worship. And for a Christian to stand in, in Pergamum as a true believer and not be exposed or not even be involved in anything that had to do with, uh, with idol worship was really, really difficult and in some ways almost impossible. Almost all the food they had that was offered to them at any party, any social function, any wedding, anything had to be had had been offered to idols. So this was a really touchy subject for the church in Pergamum, and something they had to really deal with on a day-to-day -day basis. To even be socially active, involved in business or any other trade in the city, meant probably some level of compromise. Now Paul talks about this very idea in one of his Gospels, and, and I'm not going to get into that, but he really talks about, hey, if you eat, it's okay, because you're, you're not endorsing the sin, or you're not worshiping yourself. Just eat with a clear conscience and, and, be, and be okay with that. And I think Paul wrote that specifically dealing with this issue. So, also, the Christians in Pergamum were were um, confronted by the Nicolaitans, and we talked about them earlier in one of my other lessons, but the, the sin of the Nicolaitans was really the sin of compromise, that they were, they were to give up their true belief 
and compromise in a lot of ways to other beliefs and other ideas and and there was no way to do that so this gave them an alternative truth another truth or the blending of the truth of God's word with the truths that were around them and there is no blending Christianity is exclusive and we can't just add things to it or take things away from it otherwise the Lord will come to us with a double-edged sword and he'll cut the lies out or he'll dismiss us altogether so moving on he said I'm going to fight against you and that's exactly what I'm referring to he's going to come against them with with the sword of the double-edged sword the truth of God's word the truth of who God is and he's going to fight against them until they decide whether they want all of God and all of God's truth or they continue in their compromise. Now, you'd go into a lot of church history here, but I won't. But the church has made a lot of compromises over the years and over the centuries and over the decades that have led to some pretty terrible things happening in the church. And it's up to us, first of all, in our own personal lives, but also in our own churches, to make sure that we hold ourselves accountable to the truth of God's word and not compromise because there really is no compromise. When you have the truth, it's the truth. There isn't a compromise there. You either have it or you don't. So let's move on because I want to talk about the invite and the promises. They had an invitation from the Lord to repent of their sin, to take care of these, these Balaam followers and these Nicolaitans and do away with those things and come clean and become the true church of the living God again. And he offers them two things. One is the hidden manna. That's God's provision, just like in the desert, 40 years of wandering in, in the desert by the Hebrew people. God provided for them food to take the place of the food that they'd left behind. And this is the wonderful thing about following Christ. We may think we have to give a lot of things up, but what God gives back to us is far better. It's just far better. It's God's provision for us. When we hold on to his truth and when we hold on to what he's blessed us with, he continues to bless us and feed us himself. So we may give up food sacrifice to idols as as the church in Pergamum, but we haven't lost anything because God will provide. The other thing he offers them is a white stone with a name written on it that is exclusive just to that person between that person and the Lord himself. Now, a lot has been made about the white stone, and I'm not going to make a big deal of that, but I, but I am going to, I, I want to emphasize that this is a personal gift from God himself to the person who receives it with a new name written on it that is exclusive just to them that the Lord himself has given to them. Again, a beautiful picture of God's provision that he makes a way, he provides a way. And no matter what we have to give up in this world, it is so worth it because God gives us something that the world could never give us in the first place. And that's the beauty of following Christ. So as you look at the Church of Pergamum, I hope you're encouraged, and I hope you're blessed, and I hope you'll continue to check in as we go through 
the seven churches of Asia Minor in Revelations chapter 2 and 3 during this part of this study. God bless you. Thanks for joining me. Have a great time. Have a great week. And follow Christ and his word because there's nothing better.